thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Perhaps you kept your place in the book of Galatians, the third chapter. If not, I encourage you to regain it or find it for the first time. We've been studying the book of Galatians for several weeks now, and we find ourselves this morning at verse 15 of chapter 3. Once again, we find the Apostle Paul explaining the truth of the gospel. It seems like he's beating a dead horse sometimes when we think about it from a human perspective, but it illustrates how important the gospel is, not simply to the Apostle Paul, but to our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul teaches that salvation is a free gift of God received through faith in Christ crucified and resurrected without regard to human merit. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved. And may I pause and do some interpreting about the one word which translates have been saved into our language. That one word is a word which indicates that once you are a recipient of the saving work of God through Jesus Christ, then you will never lose your position as one who stands in good stead with God. That's amazing. We have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not of works. That's our own merit, lest anyone should boast. It would be true of a person who is not really saved to begin to boast about saving himself if it were possible. But may I tell you, the Bible is very clear and no more clear than in the book of Galatians as we're going to see today about our absolute necessity to depend on the work of Christ on our behalf. He became one of us. He became the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. As we sang this morning, that first song, I hope you were here, and I had to come steal the words of it when I came up. His mercy is more. Let's think about this just a moment. What love could remember no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing he counts not their sum, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. The Bible says in the book of Micah, the seventh chapter in the Old Testament, mind you, it says that God has thrown our sins into the deepest part of the sea. That has yet to be plumbed by human beings, if you understand. And God has decided to remember them no more. Why? Because Jesus Christ became the flashpoint for the wrath of God for all the sin, not just of mine and yours, but sins of the world. Incredible. Why so much emphasis on how we can only be saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
a gift from God. Because Paul was addressing a false teaching that had quickly crept in to the Galatian churches. And that false teaching was, it is true that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It is true that He rose from the dead to justify you and enable you to become what you need to be. But it's also true that you have to do something else in order to be in good relationship with God the Father. And that is, if you were a male, to be circumcised. This flew all over the Apostle Paul. You see, in effect, he had been a Judaizer before there were Judaizers. You know that before he became a follower of Jesus Christ, he was enemy number one from the believer's point of view. They were scared to death of him because he never saw a Christian he didn't wish to do away with. And so he was one of those people who is, by his own description, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And if you know anything about the religious sect of that day in Judaism, Pharisaicalism, those were the people who undoubtedly would have populated this group known as Judaizers. They were trying to interlope as it related to the gospel of Jesus Christ and add something to the work of God. This is why Paul is like a dog on a bone when it comes to preaching the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, as he calls it in the book of Romans, because he knew firsthand the danger to oneself and others who believed or were taught that Christ's work was not enough for their salvation. He was bulldogmatic when it came to insisting on the truth of the gospel of God. His mission was to preach Christ and Christ alone crucified for our salvation. In making his point, he went to what we call the Old Testament. They were the sacred scriptures, as he would have described them and does describe them. So he went to the Word of God to validate and having already informed him of the imperative nature of the gospel of alone. He deals, first of all, with the history of Israel. In the span of eight verses, he covers 2,000 years. And he speaks of three great figures in the history of God dealing with his people. And I want to pause here just a moment. The Christian faith is rooted in real time and real history. Abraham was a man who lived. He originated in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, what does that mean? It's the region around what became Babylon. And at the age of 75, he told his wife, Sarah, who was 10 years younger, and his nephew, whose age we do not know, his name was Lot, and he said, we have been called by God, I have, and if you guys want to come with me, well and good. But if you don't, I'm going. Well, they went with him. You know the story. God promised him that he was going to do something miraculous. 
And if you want to turn with me, go to the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at three bird's eye views of the relationship between Yahweh God and this man whom we know as Abraham. His given name was Abram. He later became Abraham, and that meant a prince of a nation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you, now catch this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not simply will the offspring of Abraham and, I, and his wife Sarah become the means to the end of our salvation, culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. Not just the people who are descendants of him, Abram and Abraham and Sarah, but people who aren't descendants of him, too, in a sense of blood descent. Let's look at chapter 15 for a moment. And rather than read the whole context, I encourage you to read verses 1 through 5. But notice what verse 6 says. This is very important. A lot of people say, well, the gospel is New Testament. The Old Testament has no gospel in it. Well, we have to beg the pardon of God when we think like that because look what the Word of God says in the sixth verse of Genesis 15. Then Abram believed in the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Here was a man who was not righteous in and of himself any more than any of us is righteous in our own opportunities to try to be righteous. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. We read that last night from Psalm 14. And that's in the Old Testament, as we call it. But what we do know is, how is a man made righteous with God? Or a woman made righteous with God? By being counted by God as being righteous. By faith in God alone, in Christ alone for eternal life. And in the 17th chapter, the Bible says of Genesis again, let's look at verse 17. We fast forward from the first part of the Bible we read about this relationship that God had planned for Abram, and it was one by faith. Look, 24 years have passed in this short span of scriptural account. Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. 
So we see our faith is rooted in the Old Testament and it's historically accurate. We know that about this man. And so that's why we go to the Old Testament. The second figure, historical figure, is Moses. Now, we don't know the exact year in which Moses lived. Abraham, about 2000 BC. Moses, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of five centuries minimum, maybe even as many as seven centuries from Abraham to Moses. You know the story of Moses. I won't go into it. But he was used by God to liberate the Israelis who had been for 430 years captives. And when they came to Mount Sinai, he called Moses up on the mountain and there God met him and gave him the Ten Commandments, what is called the law. And the Old Testament has a lot of things to elaborate and expound upon when it comes to the Ten Commandments. We know this is we have read it in the books of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and those verses in Leviticus there. And then the third figure of history is none other than Jesus Christ himself. These three men, great men, Jesus the greatest of the three. Why? Because he is God become man. And he is the one who is the flashpoint of God's wrath, and then with the resurrection, the verification that what he did by living a perfect life and then dying on the cross, suffering the indignity of that, and also the penalty for our sin, the greatest person who's ever walked on the earth. God called Abraham, and he promised him things. Notice the life of Abraham as we have looked at it. There was promise, Grace and faith. Centuries passed and God called Moses. God gave Moses the law. When it comes to Moses, it's law, commands, and works. The theology of our heritage as descendants of Abraham in the sense that we are spiritual descendants of him is based on two promises two principles rather, the promise to Abraham and the law to Moses to be obeyed. When we think about what we read from the book of Genesis regarding Abraham, what did God say about his salvation? God said, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. No emphasis of any degree on what he had to do. His was to place his faith and trust in the Lord. The law of Moses was to be obeyed. And when we look at what the law amounts to, it's you shall or you shall not. Paul's conclusion is that the religion of Jesus Christ, the Christian faith, is primarily based on the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic. However, the Mosaic covenant that based in, on the law of God and represented by that concept was 
something that was critically important. Paul shows the connection, by the way, between Abraham and Moses. It's not to say that the law plays no part. We're going to see that. And this passage of Scripture teaches us regarding this connection. Two things that I want to emphasize today from this passage of Scripture, if you're taking notes. The first is the law does not cancel the promise of God. In other words, the law does not replace the promise of God. The second thing is the law clarifies God's promise and makes it indispensable for our salvation. That is the promise of God. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3 of Galatians. Brothers, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Let me pause just a moment. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, and some of your translations probably use a word like this. Even though it is only a man's will. And when the word will is used here in English, it's not talking about my desire to do something and my headstrong doing of that which I want to do exercising my will. It's talking about things that were related in Paul's day to inheritance. It's a will. People in that day, in the Roman culture, they would write a will out if they had anything to leave and that they would get it ratified by the law. And then when they died, it was used to distribute any property that that person had or any wealth that person might have had. And what this indicates is that even though it is only a man's will, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. This was true in Roman law. It could not be altered once it was in place. If that's true, Paul is saying, about a will of inheritance about a human, how much more true is it about the Lord and the promise that he makes? His will to us, as it were. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. God the Father looked down the corridor of time. He'd already been there because he's omnipresent. He lives in eternity, and time is a facet of eternity. And he knew the plan that he had. In fact, he and Jesus collaborated, it seems, that Jesus would become sin on our behalf in order that we might become right with God. And he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Jesus is the one who makes it possible, and Jesus alone, for our salvation. By living a sinless life and dying for our sins, something we cannot do on either count. Look at verse 17. What am I saying? What I am saying, rather, is this. 
The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant, and think will again, so let's just substitute the word, does not invalidate a will previously ratified by God. Now, what doesn't appear to our English reading eyes is very, very important. With regard to the word ratified, in the strongest possible term, the Spirit of God led Paul to use a form of a verb that would indicate once ratified, always ratified. It could not be undone. It had been ratified by God. So as to nullify the promise, there has not been anything like that that has been given to us. It's quite the opposite. God has made a promise. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in 1 Kings 8, 56. Now listen carefully. The scripture says, not one word of all the promises which God gave to Israel was not fulfilled. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he promised and will he not fulfill it? God is the ultimate promise keeper. And so it's so encouraging to me to understand that and see it so clearly in this verse of Scripture. Verse 18 says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. God has taken us in to that family of being able to claim the promise of God, that if we trust in Him alone, we will come to know God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Jesus is the only way. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. There are two questions that come in this part about the law clarifying God's promise which makes it indispensable. Look at the first question in verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. He answers his question. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So the law was mediated by angels, and you can read about this in the book of Deuteronomy 33 if you're interested. It was mediated through angels to Moses and then finally to the people. There is no mediation like that. The agency of the promise is God directly to Abraham and directly to all who trust in what God says about how a person can know Christ simply as we have seen several times already today, it's through the promise of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have every everlasting life. That's John. Peter says, Christ died for all, the just for the unjust, having been put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit in order that he might bring us to God, to be in the family of God. The gospel is uniform in what it describes in this 
way. Here's the second question in this passage. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. We have no way to appreciate the original two words in the language of the New Testament, which are translated by may it never be. This is the very strongest vehicle of language that Paul could get to emphasize it's not going to happen. It cannot be happen. The law and the promises are in league with each other. How does that come into play for us? Well, the law exposes our transgressions. Keep your place here and turn to Romans chapter 3, a couple of books back to your left. And we're going to look at Romans 3.20. There are other places we could look in Romans. Time will not permit. This will suffice. Look at verse 20. Maybe we should read 19 and 20. Look at it of Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. What happens is the law makes us accountable to God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without exception, everyone in this room is a sinner. That may offend you, but it's a blessed offense if it does because it exposes the reality of our need for a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. Look at verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, that would be no human being, will be made right, justified is the word, in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I would never have known that I was a sinner apart from the law. And for those who were not Jews and never had exposure to the Mosaic law, Paul writes in the second chapter of this book of Romans that Gentiles not having the law, God has written the law in their hearts so that they know right from wrong. Maybe not to the degree that would be known if you had it written and codified as we see in the Old Testament law. But nevertheless, there is none of us who is excusable. But what happens sometimes is in our lives, have you ever had it dawn on you that you'd broken the law and you didn't even know it was a law? Anybody? When I was about 38 years old, that's a long time ago, I was driving in Dal Worthington Gardens, that booming metropolis, about 250 people. And it was surrounded by Arlington, Texas, where I lived. And I was going through, and it was the school, the only elementary school, and it was the longest school zone I've ever driven through. I drove through it several times before the event in question. And so I'm driving along. My wife is sitting beside me. We were in deep conversation. I cannot remember the subject of the conversation, but we were in conversation. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw what I thought was a sign signaling after about 300 yards or more that I could go as fast as I wanted to. And I didn't go as fast as I wanted to, but I went faster than I had been going. And immediately I heard a siren and this policeman on a motorcycle pulled me over and he said, he looked at my 
license. He says, Mr. Woods, did you know you were traveling in a school zone? I said, yes, officer, I did. In fact, I think you probably were watching, and you know about nine-tenths of that I was obeying the law. <laughs> and he didn't give me any answer. He didn't buy that. I mean, he saw me. It kind of infuriated me. But I broke the law, didn't I? And I had to pay the fine. So you may not know that you have sinned, but we do know that there is no excuse when you break the law, right? In terms of civil law, but especially in relationship to our God. We need to be people who ask the second question and seek an answer, and it's found in this passage of Scripture. And here it is. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Remember, the Judaizers were contradicting the gospel and promise of God. They were saying, keep the law and you will live. Whereas, what does the Bible say? Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you will live. There's no other way to have life eternal. And eternal life, by the way, Jesus says this is eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is how you know it. If you believe in me, you will already be the recipient of that life. It's a life that begins now. It's what Christ calls the abundant life. And He is the only one who represents that to us. And He does it by coming to indwell us. That's another lesson altogether. We need to understand that the promises of God are for us, for sure. Verses 22 and following. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There's this promise, isn't it? By faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. The law is very important, isn't it? Because it tells us we're sinners and it creates distress in our lives if we begin to sense God speaking to our hearts because we know we can't save ourselves. You can't be baptized enough times. You can't take communion enough times. It's about trusting in Christ alone for eternal life. Verse 25 says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Many of you are familiar with the Broadway production in two movies at least that have been derived from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. December, there's going to be a presentation at the Plaza Theater several days. Who is the protagonist in the story? Jean Valjean. Boy, I like that man, don't you? He's real. We know from Hugo's writing that when he was a young man, he was poorly educated, couldn't read, right? Poorly educated, bright, but no opportunity. He was a man who lived in poverty. His sister had several children, 
and they were starving. And so he dared to go and steal bread to feed his nieces and nephews. He was caught in the act. He was brought to trial. He spent five years was the sentence given to him. He broke the law. That seems extreme, doesn't it? Considering the circumstances. He tried to escape prison four times and he was caught every time. Extending his stay in prison to 19 years. Finally, he gets out and he finds his way into a safe haven into a compound where there was a bishop in charge, Myriel. And this bishop was so kind and so generous. He trusted this man who had been a thief to have access to his home. And when Jean Valjean was there one evening, he was thinking about taking silverware. This was solid silver, and it was a prized possession of the bishop. And he took it, and he dashed out, and he was apprehended by the police. The police brought him back to the bishop's home. And when the bishop saw Valjean, he had already suspected it was he who had taken this prized possession. And when he saw him, he said, Oh, thank you. Thank you for protecting my silverware. And then he said, I want to give you something even more. And he added to what had been given. And he was set free by the police. Jean Valjean was astonished. That's a picture of this bishop. So if you read the story carefully, he had had some unnamed indiscretion in his past that made him have a heart for people who were sinners, this representative of the church. And so it was that awareness of the grace of God in his life that enabled this bishop to be gracious to Jean Valjean. There is an antagonist, Jolvert. That guy, you just want to slug him, don't you, when you see him in the story? And he was a legalist to the max. He was a law enforcement, and he wanted to enforce the law to a degree that nobody else would want to. He had no mercy whatsoever. And you know the story about him. His life ended very badly. He was so frustrated because he couldn't get the goods on Jean Valjean, no telling how many others. And he took his own life as he fell in from a high precipice into the Seine River in a place which was roiling with the water. Do you know the good news for you is if you're a Jean Valjean, and if you're honest with yourself, we all are. If we're in that state, we have a Lord who is perfect and a Lord who loves you. And a Lord who loves you so much that He doesn't wink at sin. He lets you know you're a sinner because He knows He has died for you. And He has taken your punishment as if you were the only person alive. He has died for you personally so that you could know the joy of being saved from your sins. 
and being given the gift of eternal life. But I dare to ask you now to bow your head and just ask you a question. Are you a person who still has not opened your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, today could be the day. And if it is, you can trust the Lord today. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. Between you and the Lord in your heart, you can say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I didn't understand. I thought I had to be a better person. Get my act together before you would forgive me of my sins. Thank you, Lord, for showing me that there's no amount of good works that I could do or good things I could do to make myself right with you. So, Lord, I humbly ask you to forgive me. And I want to claim the promise that you give that whoever calls upon you, Lord, will have his or her sins removed, not just for a while, but forever. Thank you, Lord. Help me to grow in you and get to know you now. Amen.